Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. At AJ Products, we're dedicated to delivering intelligent solutions tailored for your business needs. Specializing in warehouse and project planning, we bring efficiency and sustainability to the forefront. To elevate your business, visit ajproducts.ie. It's Friday, February the 9th, and you're very welcome to the Wrap of the Week from the Irish Times politics team. I'm Hugh Linehan. Pat Leahy and Cormac McQuinn are here today. Later on, we're going to be discussing the death of former Taoiseach John Bruton. We'll also be picking our favourite articles from the week on irishtimes.com. But first, Pat, we like a good poll around these parts. And if the definition of a good poll is one that shows that something is actually happening to the public mood, then this week's Irish Times survey of the state of the parties is a good poll. Give us the headlines. Well, it's um, it's a good poll for some people and not so much for others. So, I mean, the big headline, as people would probably be aware by now, is there's a proper slump in Sinn Féin support. They're down by six points. So that's, in polling terms, that is a very big drop. Now, our last poll was in September, it is true. Some other polls uh, in in recent weeks have suggested something similar. But uh, we There was compare- a Business Post poll a couple of weeks ago, and I think after that, a lot of people were waiting to see the next, you know, high-quality high, high quality poll, which, of course, the Irish Times one is, to see if the, the findings of that were reflected here, and they were. Yeah, and uh, now, we should say our last poll is September, which is quite a while ago. We didn't do a poll in December as we normally would because we had the the, the North and South series. So, uh, so the comparisons are with September, which is quite a long time in polling terms, but still the drop is six points. It is it's quite substantial. That six points is going around the place, not going to Fianna Fáil uh, or Fianna Gael. Fianna Gael is up one, but uh, most of the gains scattered around the smaller parties, all within the margin of error. Two points for the Greens, which they are very happy about. A couple of points for the Social Democrats, point for Labour. So, but all um, within the, those are all within the margin of error. They're all they're yeah. all within the, the margin of error. The Sinn Féin one is very uh, very significantly outside the margin of error. Also, um, Mary Lou McDonald's approval rating drops by four points as well. So there's clearly something happening. What, what do you Sinn think the something is? Yeah. So I was writing about this in Thursday's paper. Um, so I think it's 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 almost never one thing, you know. It's almost always a combination of of different things which interplay to a greater or lesser extents. I think there's two things going on here. I think there's been a series of missteps by Sinn Fein and by Mary Lou Macdonald recently. I think um I think their reaction to the Dublin riots in late November, uh calling for the Garda Commissioner's head, putting down the motion of no confidence in uh in Helen McEntee. And, you know, it's always risky. I think we talked about this here before on on the pod, but it's always risky, you know, interpreting the body language of people in the doll chamber and making too much out of it. But really, it was, I thought, unmistakable at that no confidence debate in Helen McEntee that the Sinn Féin benches kind of realised that they had 
made a mistake on it. And I think that that registered with the public. And we know from the new snapshot tracker that crime, law and order were huge issues with the public in terms of what they were noticing at that point. And I think what they noticed about Sinn Féin didn't please them or didn't please very many of them. I think also immigration is a difficult issue uh, for Sinn Féin. And even last week, you know, when um, uh, when Sinn Féin had what was by any standards a political triumph, they took over the First Minister's office in Northern Ireland. Mary Lou MacDonald's reaction to this, you know, trying to use it to push the unity agenda, saying that it brought a united Ireland to within touching distance. I'm not sure that landed um, very well uh, with, with, with many voters either. So they're all kind of necessarily kind of short term things. They're the sort of kind of tactical things that that happen in uh, in political affairs. But, more, but, but some at a more of them, strategic make, level. Some, yeah, some of them do come back to Mary Lou Macdonald and decisions which she and her leadership team have made yeah. more than once, don't yeah, they? I think so. so there yeah. are questions. I there. think so. And maybe yeah. that's reflected in her personal rating coming down. But I think more seriously for the party at sort of a strategic level, it has this difficulty, which in some respects is a difficulty of success, but it is presenting itself as the party of change, which was so successful for it at last year's or at the 2020 general election. But at the same time, it is seeking to reassure many of its new voters or people who perhaps for the first time are open to voting for Sinn Féin, older people, people, uh, people from middle class backgrounds. It's trying to reassure them that this change that it promises won't be a change that discommodes them or there's nothing to be alarmed about when they talk about change. And that's a difficult horse to ride. Similarly, it is trying to keep its options open on coalition, saying it will talk to everybody. You talk to people in Sinn Féin and they kind of acknowledge that a, Fianna Fáil, a potential Fianna Fáil coalition might be their best route to, to a sustainable government after the next uh, election. But that's a difficult line to walk when you're trying also to appeal to voters who really, really want to get rid of Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael from government for good. So Cormac, Mary Lou MacDonald was unusually frank yesterday in reacting to these uh, these poll results when they came out. Generally, generally, political leaders, when they get a bad poll, they sort of say, oh, I never pay any attention to them. It's the, it's the real vote that counts. But she acknowledged quite openly that Sinn Féin had a bit of a problem here. Yeah, I mean, it, it seemed a, a little bit rattled by it all, uh, suggesting that she doesn't have a scientific explanation for the, the drop in support and that it's something they'll, they'll have to correct. She, she's been true. It was similar before, of course, after the local elections in 2019 when Sinn Féin were, had a disaster. They lost half their council seats and the party very much did have to uh, reassess how they were doing things and, and look at what they could do to uh, to come back in time for the general election, which, which of course they did and, and surprised everyone. And it, it wasn't shown in the polls beforehand that they would do so well. Funny, you should mention the, the, the Fianna Fáil aspect and the route to government. There was one thing that struck me about this poll is, is possibly the first time in a long time that those two parties together wouldn't make more than 50% of the electorate support. So they'd need a, a third leg and the stool to, to form a government. To, they might get to 50% of those seats. They might, between, but, between it's, the but it's, them, yeah. it'd, be, it'd be tight. It'd be two, they're 2% short as of this this poll. And it's the first time in a long time. So it's, it's still probably the, the most straightforward route to a, a government if, if, if Fianna Fáil were, were up for it. But uh, but it's just, it's not quite as uh, straightforward as, as it was in, pre- in previous polls. Isn't the other part of the challenge for Sinn Féin as a, as a party which has had such polling success over the last three or four years, Pat, that it is now a much broader coalition and therefore there's a kind of a threat within that which, is, you know, bits of your coalition can fall off a bit more easily. It strikes me at the moment, you know, on, on everything from 
questions of whether it's whether it's uh, radical enough on what Ireland should do about the war in Gaza to on the other end of the equation what its position exactly should be on tightening restrictions on on immigration you know if it goes one way it risks losing a few on one side if it goes the other way it risks losing a few on the other that, that's kind of tough to manage yeah it is and i mean all big parties to a greater or lesser extent are coalitions and they all have their issues in kind of keeping that coalition together. But for Sinn Féin, this is new. The others have been doing it for some time. Indeed, you could say some small parties are coalitions as well. But it's 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 new for Sinn Féin trying to keep that keep that together. And it's got to do this while it also has a political focus elsewhere on Northern Ireland. Now, you know, we've talked here before about how the locus of Sinn Féin's priorities has moved from north to south over the last 10, 15 years or so. But the north is still obviously very important for them and they are now in government uh, in the north. So I, I, I think, you know, you can see how the difficulties for Sinn Féin are piling up. We should say, of course, that they're still by some distance the largest, uh, the largest mm-hmm. or at least the most popular party. If there was an election in the morning, they would be the largest party uh, in the Dáil by, uh, by, by some distance. They're looking forward to European and local elections, which because partly because of their poor performance in uh, 2019, they can look forward to very spectacular gains at. So, you know, I mean, it's not, the tide hasn't completely gone out for Sinn Féin, no, but, but what they are the... experiencing some kind of, I think, kind of tactical and strategic yeah, conundrums. And, and it's not clear what their answers are. A lot of the dynamics which we've kind of taken for granted over the last couple of years start coming into into question now like because they uh, they they didn't put forward enough enough candidates in 2020, they left a lot of seats on the table, and mo- a lot of those seats were taken up by small left wing uh, parties and independents. And the, the assumption was that Sinn Fein would Hoover up those seats the next time around. But with you know some marginal shifts back to some of those smaller left wing parties and a dip in the Sinn Fein vote, that equation changes, Cormac, doesn't it? Sure, and we actually see that in the in the the poll here. I think the Social Democrats are up. I think it was two points to 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 four. Is it? Yep. Uh, Labour's on four as well. Uh, the Green Party's on five. You know, I'm very pleased with that. They are too. I was you at were a press conference. To with, Ryan. Yeah, I mean, he he gave the old line. You know, politicians would often say that oh, we don't pay attention to polls. He says that's nonsense. Uh, he's saying that this is everybody's uh, paying attention to polls. It's a real change in yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, this is politicians think it's something of a kind of a a massive admission when they say, oh, although we say we don't pay attention to polls, do you know? Yes, we do. You know, fellas, uh, we know that. But he he says that uh, it's proof that, you know, that uh, the public are starting to see that the the Green Party are delivering a government. His his party colleague, Senator Pauline O'Reilly, who's leading the charge on a referendum campaign for them, said that the party is buoyed by the by the results of the poll. Uh, But but yeah, I mean, this these are these are parties that would have feared, would probably still fear to a large degree that Sinn Féin would eat their lunch at the next election. Uh, but the, the results of this poll suggest that maybe, maybe they don't have as much to be worried about as as, that, as before. I had a notion that, that we should introduce for, for, for this podcast a little bell or a buzzer when I ask the question I'm just about to ask, which is, what implications does this have for the timing of the next election, Pat? Ding, ding. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's it's kind of part of the mix now, isn't it? You know, and there's... I've seen lots of hot talk from Fine Gaelers principally over recent days saying, oh, you know, this pods on pressure for uh, an early election. We know that uh, both Fianna Fáil and the Greens believe that they, or at least their leaders do, believe that the election should take place in the spring of next year, that the government should 
go its full term, say it's going its full term, as indeed it says in the programme for government, and uh, and go to the end. We also know that the Taoiseach has been a bit more ambiguous about this. We know that there's this historic issue of you know, timing, the timing of elections when it comes to Fine Gael leaders. They've never, they've never, they've picked never the right got time. it right. Yeah. Well, certainly, you know, the experience of the last three times they've done it would tend maybe, to suggest. And of course, maybe we cannot know though. how... Maybe it's just Fine Gael, you know? Well, look, we can't know, obviously, how things would have turned out had mm. they chosen a different... Uh, timing for the last three elections that Fine Gael Tishi have picked. But what we do know is that the timing that they did pick didn't work out particularly uh, particularly well. So uh, there is, I would say, a growing expectation in government that uh, that the government will not go uh, its its full term. As to whether that's the best strategy or not, I, I'm I'm will I'm in, not go. I'm in two minds. Will not go its full we'll term. Go, will not it's go not to go late term. winter or early yeah. spring they, of next they year. They want to see the results of the local elections. They so want to see the results of the local elections. Again, there's a bit of hot talk in recent days. Oh, you know, spring election this year. I just think, what's your what's your public facing reason? For but doing we, that? Should, we should be on high alert if, it's, if, if the results are anyway good for the government in the local but, elections. But can, but can, I, can I ask uh, one of you? I mean, you say that the leaders of the of of Fianna Fáil and the Greens mm-hmm. don't want a, an, an earlier election, and I guess actually probably most of the Greens don't want one. I don't know what the story is in Fianna Fáil, but it isn't really. Even though constitutionally the Taoiseach can can go to the park and call the election, and Leo Varadkar is the Taoiseach. It wouldn't be politically tenable, would it, for him just to turn around and do that against the express wishes of his coalition partners? It'd be the worst possible way for them to head into an election. Well, he could do it, but it could do it. It damages it damages his prospects of presenting, you know, the government as a success. And it seem it I find it difficult to figure out how the three parties in government won't approach the next election if they cannot say that. This government has been a success and it makes it harder for them to say that if it has ended in acrimony. Now, look, at the end of the day, the the calling, how the election is called is a kind of a day one, day two story in, uh, in the campaign. We get over it and we start asking politicians uh, about other things. Maybe it starts it on, uh, on, on, on a bad note for the government, but, you know, everybody gets over it and goes on. It's a separate question, actually, of what the strategic value of it is, whether you should wait, whether you shouldn't wait. The great argument against not waiting, of going at a time of your choosing is... Once you decide to go and announce you're going the full distance, you are to a certain degree at the mercy of events um, in in the run into in the run into that election. That's why a lot of people in government think we pick our time in the autumn of this year after another giveaway uh, giveaway budget before by elections kick in and that. But um, my my guess is that decision just simply hasn't been made. But I'm pretty sure that Leo Varadkar will want to be in a position to go in the autumn if he judges that to be in his best interests. So that was the poll we published yesterday, Cormac. The poll we published today was um, our first major polling of voting intentions in the two referendums, which are due to take place on March the 8th. And judging by those, if the election were held tomorrow, both would pass easily.
Sure, yeah, I think it was 52% yes for the, the family uh, question and, and 50, 59% was it for the, for the, the, the care referendum, which uh, would indicate that, yes, they would pass easily, but we're still a month away from the, the actual polling day and, and turnout is going to be the big issue. And this, this one, will people care enough to go? One thing I thought about it was the, the higher level of yes support for the care referendum, which, of course, the one where it would see the, uh, the infamous women in the home uh, provision of the Constitution deleted would suggest that that has a much easier way path to, to success for all, pretty much all the political parties which are backing a yes vote. It's a, it's probably an easier one to understand. It throws up less culture war questions as than the, the family uh, referendum. One thing that should be a concern for, for the government is the level of people that, that say they know hardly anything about the referendums, 53%. You know, the, the old danger in referendums is the if you don't know, vote no message that mm. no sides will often... And there's another 35% or so who say they don't really know very much about Absolute, it well. Absolutely. Uh, I think there was only 8% that, that said they knew a fair bit about it. And of those 8%, they're more likely to vote no. Sure, yeah. Than, they, than the they, rest they, of them. They, they, the no side <coughs> seem better mm. informed. That's the danger for the yes sides, that the more people... The more people educate themselves about it, about the more dubious they'll become yeah, about it. Yeah, I mean, that can exactly, happen, can't yeah. it? We've seen that happen in a way, to some kind extent. Of that... that those figures kind of turn on their head at this stage. The old kind of saw about if you don't know, vote no. It's a, lots of people who, if they don't know, are planning to vote yes here on this. But you would expect those numbers to change. And the point that Cormac makes about turnout is probably the most important one. I think we can expect a very low turnout in this under forty percent uh, in this referendum. Uh, that would not surprise me at all. And um, and then you get into, if you have a really low turnout, you get into which side is more motivated, who's more likely to go to the polls on the day. So while this looks settled at this stage, I just don't think Having it is. said that, if you were a betting man, you'd, you'd put your money on, on, on them passing at this point. Well, it would be a brave bet to look at that poll and bet on them, uh, and bet on them not passing. But um, I... I I just think the picture is likely to have tightened considerably in a couple of weeks' time. Do you think that the public will become more engaged? Obviously, this is going to become higher up the public agenda. There'll be debates on the airwaves. There'll probably be debates on this podcast. You know, uh, people will pay attention to it a bit more. Yeah, I mean, I think they will. Look, geez, it'd, be, it'd be difficult for them to pay less attention to it, uh, to be sure. honest, you know. Sure. So I think you can expect that they will pay. But it's, it's just, I just think there's a, there's no question of them kind of grabbing the public attention in the way that, say, the same-sex marriage referendum or the abortion referendum did. We're just not in that sort of territory. Well, I think no more analogous to uh, the thing, and this is a comparison that um, that Jennifer Braid drew in her piece setting out uh, the template for the campaign a couple of weeks ago. She likened it to the children's re- children's rights referendum, which was, I think, in, in 2012, where there was a turnout of about 33%. Yeah. And it I think. squeaked through. So... Um, you the know, problem you, is there's no tangible impact on people's lives like there was in the repeal referendum, like there was in the, the marriage equality referendum. You know, the certainly the, the argument has been made that the, the women at home provision has been an issue in the past, but I, I think it's hard to argue that it, it really impacts people today. You know, so it's it's that's that's one thing that the, the yes side will struggle with is just how will this actually change your life if you vote yes? All right, we'll take a break. We'll be back after this. 
At AJ Products, we're dedicated to delivering intelligent solutions tailored exclusively for your business needs, spanning offices, warehouses, industries, workshops, schools, and public spaces. Specializing in warehouse and project planning, we bring efficiency and sustainability to the forefront. Our offerings include versatile storage solutions and comprehensive office project design and implementation. With over 45 years of experience, we stand as your trusted partner in smart B2B solutions. To explore all we have to offer, visit ajproducts.ie and elevate your business with AJ Products. And you're very welcome back. John Booten died this week, Pat. You were writing about him. I think you'd be writing about him over the weekend as well. He was Taoiseach for two and a half years, a very significant two and a half years. Um, we we mentioned him as part of our gargantuan Bertie, Bertie Years podcast. Um, some people think that two and a half years was the best government Ireland ever had. So it's a, it's, it's a really interesting period and a really consequential period in modern Irish history. Lots of things happen in that period that have profound long-term consequences. The uh, advent of runaway uh, economic growth, for one, and also, obviously, the uh, the peace process in Northern Ireland. So, at that time that John Bruton was in the front line of politics and for a substantial period where he's Taoiseach, you get this kind of huge leaps made by his government, by others as well, but certainly by his government in addressing these two big things that have always, you know, until that time have been the two big failures of the independent Irish state. It's inability to provide economically for its citizens and the conflict in the north. And there's huge strides made uh, in addressing both those problems at the time. And he leads a government that is really important in that. Not, as I say, the only government that uh, uh, that, that that did important things, but certainly he did. And it's also kind of a, a febrile time as well. He's the only Taoiseach to have taken office after a change in government without an election. Um, he ran a very good government by all accounts, very inclusive. He's an interesting figure in that he was kind of a very traditional conservative figure himself in some ways, quite right wing economically. But he leads this centre left government, partly because he realises he has to change himself and partly, I suppose, because the growing economy gives that government the resources to uh, to do lots of things that previous governments wouldn't have had to do. Certainly that the government that he previously served in from 1982 to 1987 wouldn't have been. He's also, his failure uh, to get re-elected is also really consequential, I think, in 1997. Now, you know, I don't think that could, blame for that can be laid at his door. Uh, Fine Gael gains nine seats in that 1997 election, but Labour support collapses, Labour seat hall collapses. And as a result of that, as a result of the failure of that government to be re-elected, you get, you know, a decade and more of Fianna Fáil PD governments, rather than centre-left rainbow government. So let, that's me, really let, important. let me ask you this, because we kind of did a what-if earlier on about Fine Gael's failure to pick the right date for an election. I, I am intrigued by the what-if here. You know, I know, you know, they only have a certain value, but I am intrigued. John Bruton, it seems to me, would have been less well-equipped to see through the process that led to the Belfast Agreement than Bertie O'Hearn was, who had remarkable skills in that area and was also arguably better politically positioned on the Irish political spectrum. But some people feel, myself included, that he and his government might have been a better steward of the public finances as they surf the boom into the noughties. What do you think? Well, a great thing about what ifs, Hugh, is that they are, you know, undisprovable. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, do, do you disagree with me? Um, 
So I think it's difficult to know on the north. I think he's he's got he's got a very different approach in some respects to to Bertie Hearn, who sees himself. Bertie Hearn sees himself, and we we I think we spoke about this on um, in in episode twelve of our nineteen episode extravaganza last summer. Hugh, um, that Bertie Hearn sees himself as the leader of nationalist Ireland, and that enables him then to bring the rest of nationalist Ireland in under that broad tent. The you know, unionists used to talk about the pan-nationalist front, you know, and in respect, in many respects, they were they were right. And that gives you one route to the restoration of ceasefires and the Good Friday uh, Agreement. John Bruton uh, sees himself, I think, as as an honest broker between the two warring tribes. I mean, obviously, he's the leader of the Irish Republic that nationalists have looked to, but he is sensitive to unionists in a way that makes nationalists nervous. And, and, and I also wonder, perhaps has a greater antipathy to, you know, self-identifies as, a, as, as in the Redmondite Irish parliamentary constitutional nationalist tradition and therefore has a more deep-seated antipathy towards anyone who's got any time for physical force republicanism. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Whereas Bertie Hearn comes from the, the opposite tradition which venerates 1916. John Bruton doesn't. And, and I think that makes it easier for Bertie. Probably makes it easier for Bertie to deliver the, 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 the immediate ceasefires in 1997 which let's not forget like our, our the ceasefires restored I don't know is it like a month or, or six weeks after the general election or after Bertie Hearn becomes Taoiseach probably I think it's a matter of weeks but um, so that makes it perhaps easier for him t- uh, to do that but you would wonder then that interminable decade that followed of wrangling over the setting up of the institutions. Does that happen if John Bruton... So I, I, I think you're probably on the road to some sort of an agreement anyway, mm. and let's not forget, no matter what happened here, Tony Blair, who wants to uh, you know, go the extra mile, as it were, and produce an agreement uh, in the North, is, is, is also in office as well. So it's not just dependent on what, who's in what, office What there. about the economic management side? I think you have a different type. You, you, you know, if you go back to the 1997 election, so both Fine Gael is, is, is promising tax cuts, but not tax cuts as, uh, as clearly as uh, Fianna Fáil is promising them. Here you have, so let's say in, in the uh, Hugh Linehan ordained alternative universe, Bridge Bruton is Taoiseach in 1998, through that runaway period of the Celtic Tiger boom, Rory Quinn is Minister for Finance. I think Rory Quinn is definitely cutting taxes, but he's not cutting them as enthusiastically or deeply as Charlie McCreevy is. So you get a less boomy boom but then you probably get a less busty bust. Mm. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. So you agree with me, ultimately? Well, I, I, I don't know when we can. I mean, as I say, it's undisprovable, Hugh. So, you know. <laughs> Moving on to things that we do know uh, are actually happening. Uh, Cormac, we're picking our articles of the week and you've been looking at some of the, the really excellent coverage coming in from Kiev and Dan McLaughlin covering events in Ukraine. Sure, and I know I know we say it often, but it shows the value of having our people on the, the ground in, the, in these places. Uh, he's done great work this week in terms of... Uh, just reporting, given updating readers on what's actually happening in what's almost a forgotten war since since the Gaza conflict started. Um, it's not going terribly well for the Ukrainians at the moment. Uh, there's upheaval at the top of their military. Uh, President Zelensky has just gotten rid of his top general Zaluzny, if I'm pronouncing that well anyway done. correctly. Well um, you know, effort, it's it's uh, there's it shows how politics is is creeping into the to the war. It's seemingly the, the general wanted to call up five hundred thousand more people. 
and uh, Zelensky saw the, the political danger in that. Uh, but aside from that, uh, Daniel's been doing good work doing things like uh, visiting a, a drone factory, uh, all of these cottage, it's like a cottage industry, but a massive cottage industry in Ukraine, uh, creating these high-tech drones to uh, bring medical supplies to their troops, but also drop bombs on Russian tanks and how this has grown up in the, in the course of the war as they fight the industrial might of uh, of Russia. So it was just interesting to, uh, to get an update on all of that. It's great. It's that combination of insight into what's happening you know, at the top of politics, but also this kind of on the on the ground sure. reportage as well, and he's 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 really good at it. My story is a is is a lot closer to home. Olivia Kelly, our Dublin editor, broke a story that private cars were to be banned from the centre of Dublin from this August, apparently, and it has caused all kinds of ruxus in in the days since it broke, including um, a sort of entreaties from Diageo, the makers of Guinness, um, who really account for apparently ninety percent of the five axle trucks that now travel through the the city centre. I think there's you know there's a solution. To this, they used to have barges. Can they not just, you know, bring back the barges and, and sort it out that way? I, I, I mean, I, I pretty much thought true traffic in the city centre was pretty much banned anyway. As anyone has tried to drive from the north side to the south side, you can add 45 minutes to an hour to your journey. So you'd want to be mad to be doing that in the first place. It is pretty tricky. I'm going to use the, the opportunity, which I, I, I always do, as you know, to, to uh, exercise my own hobby horses here. They're introducing these uh, <laughs> um, these uh, bus gates, as Reader, they call them, never where private cars are supposed not to drive down these. I've seen these bus gates and every bloody day there's private cars driving down them. In fact, my whole walk home at the moment is theoretically a bus gate because they're, they're building building something which is supposed to be cycle lane but appears to be the Hanging Gardens of Babylon because they've been doing it for two years now and it is a, bu- a bus gate for that period and there's all kinds of private cars in it and I've, I, haven't seen a, I haven't seen a policeman stop one in a year. Pat, what was your article? <laughs> yeah, uh, so my, my piece I picked was um, a piece by Fintan O'Toole, his column on Tuesday in which he talked about uh, RTE and specifically the continuing... Uh, inability of D. Forbes, the former Director General, to give evidence to Dáil committees. She has said that she is unwell. He says in, in normal circumstances, respect for her privacy would oblige us to leave it at that. But these are not normal circumstances. And he is questioning why... Steve Forbes cannot engage in some way with the uh, with the committee. Yeah, he points out there's a number of different things being being asked of her, and you know doesn't necessarily need to be up before the star chamber of the Oireachtas committee. But responses to documents which are furnished to her or giving some input, various kinds of things. He makes a very strong. He's, he he does that thing that you would look for from a really good piece, isn't it? He he says what everybody else is thinking, but hasn't. I think put it on the he record. yeah, I, I think he does so kind of. Carefully, and it yeah. may well be the case that D. Forbes's illness, uh, brought on by the trauma that she experienced in RTE, it, it it seems reasonable to assume is sufficiently grave that she cannot do uh, she cannot do anything. But if that is so, then he suggests that she needs to make that clear to the Dáil committees and with, I guess, an appropriate medical explanation rather than simply saying I'm unwell. Because there has been a touch of of Hamlet without the Prince about all these proceedings over the last year or so, haven't there? I mean, there is no way you can really adequately get to the bottom of what happened in or to adequately explain it without the cooperation of uh, of D. Forbes. That is true. But as I think we've said here before, uh, probably repeatedly, I, I think 
that's less important. What happened in RTE and the story of the past in RTE, while interesting, uh, entertaining at times and certainly important, is much less important than what happens to RTE in the future. That's not something that D Forbes is involved in. We'll leave it there for today. Thanks very much to Pat and to Cormac. Thanks to our producer, John Casey, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. We'll be back with you after the weekend. Until then, do have a lovely weekend.